Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Sedulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, we'll be hosting a one-day event, Business of Sport, at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur. Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Exec of Manchester City Council, part of the City's Commonwealth Games delivery and legacy team. The Chief Executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison. GB Javelin Champion and Olympic medalist Goldie Sayers, the Chief Exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson, and the Chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website. More speakers to be announced shortly, but it is going to be a fantastic day. That's Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023, Downtown in Business's Business of Sport Conference. Hi, this is Frank Kennard, the Chief Executive and Group Chair of Downtown in Business. And as a preview to Gary Neville appearing at our inaugural Business of Sport Conference in September, we thought we'd just give you a reminder of the conversation I had with Gary uh, back in, I think it was 20, 2021 maybe, uh, at the Belfry at our Property and Regeneration Conference. He was illuminating and entertaining in equal measure, talked about uh, his business interests, football, politics of course, uh, and this gives you a little bit of a taste as to what you can expect. On the 5th of September at Lancashire County Cricket Club, where Gary alongside another host of fabulous speakers uh, will be contributing to that business of sport conference hope to see you there here's gary neville in conversation with me frank mckenna the belfry a couple of years ago okay i'm sure i'll get our next guest speaker doesn't really need any introduction but i'm going to introduce him anyway uh, gary neville i'm told the most decorated uh, right back in Europe, according to Wikipedia, maybe right back in Captain of Manchester United Football Club, of course, a hugely successful football career. Um, perhaps not as well known, uh, a business person, entrepreneur from an early age, and we'll talk about that as we get into the conversation. Now uh, involved in property investment, in hotels, owns a football club, a university, and of course, most famously, the manager of Valencia. Give a warm welcome to Gary Neville. Right, mate, sorry about that. Um, I was in to give me a <laughs> Listen, let's talk about your business journey and how it started because um, from a very early age, uh, somebody who will be even better known across the globe than you gave you a piece of advice in terms of what you should do with your cash as a young footballer. Who's that? Someone called Sir Alex. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the, the thing that Sir Alex taught us from an early age was to make our own decisions and to take control of our own lives. 
and to be independent. And even if we had agents, you know, other the more high-profile players who had lots of commercial contracts had agents and needed them. But you always said make sure that you are across the detail of everything. Um, so if you see the horror stories in football of players investing, say, in film schemes, there might be people in this room investing in film schemes. We all got offered these types of schemes. But I have to say, I always sat in the meetings and when the guy said to me that you invest uh, you know, money into a scheme and even if it fails, you get a lot of money back, I thought, that would sound like <laughs> So I said, no, just instinctively, this didn't sound like So I've always made my own decisions. That's not always necessarily been the right decision, but I, I think that I can say that along the way, my experiences have sort of taught me to, to become better as I've got older. Uh, and I always never felt, I always knew my football career was coming to an end. I always knew that I had to sort of plan for that next bit. Uh, and at the age of 24, I invested, uh, my friend was uh, a director at a mechanical electrical design consultancy in Manchester. And he was bringing a lot of the work in. He wasn't getting rewarded for it. He was speaking to me. I was building my own house at the time. It was the second house I was building, doing it myself and said, why don't we set up a business? I'll put the money in, uh, we'll go 50-50. I said, you know, if you don't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And that business is still running to this day. I exited three years ago. Um, but what I did, I went in there all the time. I sat in the board meetings. I got interested in mechanical electrical design. It then moved into sustainability, sustainability as well. So part L changed, things around 2004 was the big change in part L, which meant that we had to employ sustainable, sustainable engineers. Um, I just learned a lot about building properties and I said, oh, I was building a big house in Bolton on a farm and the contractor went bust. So I then employed the construction director of that contractor and set up my own construction company to build 15, 20 houses over the next five, six years. So I know how difficult it is to contract, I know how difficult it is to develop, how difficult it is to be an architect, so I'm sat on, you know, the oral consultant, should I say. So I just sat for sort of seven or eight years every afternoon in meetings and Develop quietly without Sir Alex knowing about it. I never did it Friday, and uh, never did it Tuesday, really game Wednesday. I always made sure it was Monday and Thursday or whenever the games weren't. Um, so I always made sure that I wasn't distracted away from my football, but I was learning all the time. And just, I was obsessed with property actually. I was really obsessed with it. I built my first house at the age of 21 in a 12,000 square foot barn conversion in Bolton. I was just fascinated by it. the challenges. The overspend, the. <laughs> and now, you know, Sir Alex used to say something to us when we used to make the same mistake twice. Why do you keep walking into the same glass door, son? Um, and we still do, don't we? <laughs> you know, when you're building and you're in property and you never allow enough contingency, you always make little changes. And the most difficult ones are houses. The most difficult projects to build are houses because they're emotional, either for you or for someone else. So I found as though it's the most difficult, I think it's most, more difficult doing that than what would be a clinical office building or a building that's not got the emotion in it. So I think we learned the hard way a little bit. Um, I just wanted to develop. At the age of 30, I became really interested in hospitality, just through my travels with United, always staying in hotels, always judging the food, the quality of the welcome. Minibar, when you go in the room, you open it. Is it a good minibar? Is it not a good minibar? Is the bathroom clean and the towels there? The soap, is the soap good? Is the shampoo good? All the things that, you know, we just, we live three, we live three nights a week in a hotel. We stayed in a hotel before every home game and every away game. So our lives were 50% hotels. And I then joined a Maltese listed company on the board in house 31. 
um, and went to every single board meeting that I could or joined in by conference calls who didn't exist there. Um, and just again learned quite a little bit about hotels, about how that works and that's how the hotel business came about. So yeah, I just never thought that football was always going to be the be-all and end-all for me. I never thought as much as Manchester United was my life. I knew I had to leave Manchester United even when I was playing there because I didn't want to be known for sort of the last 30 years of my life living off the club um, and just be known as ex-Manchester United football player. I wanted to do other stuff and I knew that to do that I had to go and learn and go away. Things like Valencia, uh, things like the England experience which, you know, setting up two restaurants that failed and going into things that I shouldn't have done. All these things that have happened to me in the last 10-11 years wouldn't have happened if I stayed at United cuddled and cushioned and safe net around you, which it gives you, um, and it's brilliant, but I knew I had to get out there and go on television and sort of challenge myself. You talked about your property investments and hospitality, but of course you've also got a football club yeah. and a university. So what drew you into those two schools? The football club was out of the fact that I knew that we had to do something together beyond playing and everyone sets up an academy, don't they? But essentially it's a, it's a babysitting service for people looking forward to putting kids into a soccer school in the summer and it, it, that's what it is. And I just didn't think that would ever really challenge us, I didn't think that would ever really sort of stimulate me. And I said let's take over a football club and at the beginning the ambition was to take over a football club in a place that we were passionate about and that we liked. And I only do I only do things that I like and I'm passionate about. So forget what the return may be. I don't you know when people say what's the exit strategy. I, honestly, just if I like doing it and I'm passionate about it, I'll go into it. Um, and you know Salford had sort of grown up there as a United player from the age of eleven. Skulls was born there, Gigsy had lived there, we'd all been at the training ground where the Busby Babes grew up. And we loved that place. And Salford City Football Club was something that, you know, they had a committee, it was uh, being propped up by a you know, really hard working, long standing committee. And we just went in and said, can we, how, can we come up, can we come in and sort of change your club, invest in your club? And the idea was to bring young players through and just put them in the first team and be really organic. But then you get in there <laughs> and the book comes and you need to win and you feel that. And, and I have to say that the first three or four years, it was absolutely amazing. Five years, I would say. I think in the last two or three years, you forget why you did it in the first place. And that sometimes happens in life. You forget actually why you went into something in the first place. It was for the passion, it was for the love. And I feel like we need a cultural reset at the moment and that's happening. Yeah, we need to grow, we need to win, we need to try and go up and all the other things, but we need to have players that want to wear the shirt like we did at United. You know, and I always think that if I go and watch any football club play, the only thing I ever look for is, are those players on that pitch committed to the shirt and the badge? And that's whether it's a Leeds United player, a Manchester United player, a Salford City player, it doesn't change for me. Burnley's players are committed to the badge. They might not be the best football team in the world to watch, but they're committed and that's, I think, all fans can ask for. So I think we've just got to get back to that at Salford City and it's the greatest challenge, it's, it's probably my greatest loving that I have at the moment in terms of what I do um, and you know, we want to make sure we try and go back to that original principle of winning but with young players, younger players, developing an academy, developing great facilities and we've gone a little bit away from that. The university came out of the football club because we had a partnership with Salford University and I was just 
talking to Professor Amanda Broderick, who was our contact there. She was Deputy Vice-Chancellor at Salford University. And we were talking about a partnership with the football club and the university. And we employed three uh, media students. They'd been with us for seven years and two of them left in the last month, one to go to Everton and one to go to Manchester United. And that gives me great pride that it's not just on the pitch that you can bring people through, but you can develop people. And they ran our media department right the way through from the Eberstick North, right the way through to the Football League. And it does give me great pride. So that there's the intention of that partnership. But then we started talking about young people, education, how young people are viewed today, not being as tough as we are in our day. And the fact that is university, um, is the curriculum really fit for purpose? In 2020, 2019, an hour one day, two hours the next, an hour the next, a sort of erratic curriculum doesn't really represent anything that you would engage with in your normal life, um, whether it be your school life or whether it be your working life. And we said that we thought we could do something that worked really on people's characters, personalities, develop them as people. And we put really character and personal development at the heart of the curriculum and put the sort of what would be the subject around it. Because you go to university really for your subject, for the certificate. You want to come out with that certificate, don't you? That's why you want that qualification. But that three years has got to be about more than that. Yeah. You can't come out just after three years with a certificate. And you've worked at maybe an F&B place, or you've mm. sort of you know, dosed around a little bit. I'm not saying everyone does, but that's the sort of perception. You know, there's a lot more to achieve in that three years. And uh, we just felt as though we could do something that was sort of true to our roots. Um, we partnered with Lancaster University. Uh, we changed the whole curriculum, turned it on its head. It's quite disruptive. Whether it'll work or not in the long term, I think it will, but we'll see. Uh, and it's inclusive. It should give all an opportunity to get to university. Um, and it's three years in, we've had our best. It's the first year we've hit our target on student numbers um, this year now, this intake. And that's something that gives us a little bit of sort of comfort we're on the right track but it's young people we had to do things we had to do projects and even within the projects that aren't necessarily always that hotel is not about young people we always have to make sure that there is a pathway to a better pay better job and I think young people of today I think they're tougher than us 20 years ago and I think they're tougher than the ones 40 years ago I genuinely believe that I think they have more to contend with than we did you know I was growing up I just had to play football and go to school these kids now have information thrown at them from multiple platforms. They're, I think, willing to stand up to the parents, they're willing to stand up to the teachers, they're willing to stand up to the bosses, they won't be taken for a fool. I think it's happening now in the hospitality industry where people are saying, no, I'm not gonna work poor, I'm not gonna work in poor conditions, poor pay, long hours. No, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not gonna just have a career in hospitality. If you don't like it, they leave, they go and do something they like. I think that's tougher. You know, what, what, what Raheem Sterling did two years ago as a football player by speaking out about the injustices that he was experiencing, what Marcus Rashford has done, no football player would have done that 20 years ago. Mm. They'd have been told to concentrate on the job by the boss, mm. by the dad, <laughs> yeah. and we'd have done it. <laughs> yeah. But now I think you can put my 11 and 12-year-old daughters, I think are far stronger, willed, more independent than I was at the age of 11 and 12. Uh, we were subservient to our mm. elders, and I think that for me... I want a university where young people, I think young people should inspire us. They can teach us so much. Um, and I think some of the greatest learnings that I've had in football when I was an older football player were from the younger players. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo comes back to Manchester this weekend to play. And I remember when I played with him 16, 17 years ago, 
And he started wandering from the right wing to the left wing. And that was unknown. Where the fuck are you going? <laughs> Get in front of me here. That's where David Beckham was for six years, or Andre Kinchelski. You're in front of me. That's how we work. We work together on this side of the pitch. But look at every single forward now in football. They move from one side to the other. And it's innovation, it's creativity, it's allowing young people to roam free. To be, and I do think that, you know, that wouldn't have happened in 1985. He'd been told to stay on this side, and he'd have stayed there. He told Cristiano Ronaldo to stay on the right side. If he wasn't getting the ball or he wasn't getting any joy, he's going over to that side. And I think that's symptomatic of the, yeah, the determination that young people have. So I think the university was to sort of enhance that and not. Yeah, put belief into young people in, and not think that they could be, um, they should be held back, they shouldn't be held back, they should be allowed to fly. So that's what Sir Alex Ferguson did with us, he allowed us to fly. Okay. Anyone listening to you now, most of us in this room have got one business and we're knackered, right? I'm knackered. So you're, yeah, but you've got 99 businesses. Oh. So the question I want to put to you is, where do you find, not the time, because everyone can make time, the energy, the commitment, and how do you feel comfortable, because I know what a perfectionist you are, that all of those businesses are going in the direction that you want them to go in? Uh, I've changed a lot in the last 11 years. Uh, first coming out of, the, of football, I would say I wasn't involved in operation, but I was included in operational discussions, included in operational uh, elements and that was more to learn really and more to experience it and for me to be in there but when you're in there as someone who's a shareholder in a business it can undermine your staff it, you've got to be very careful about what you say I'm conscious of that now at the football club when you speak to a manager um, you know you're really careful about particularly as a shareholder you're not involved in operation one small comment that you might think is innocuous can really damage team morale so I think that from now from where I am now to where I was sort of 10 years ago I'm a lot more removed from it but I feel I can smell problems more. Mm. So I think I, can, I feel like I can sense things more. Yeah. You can just, you just feel it by, because I always go into the, I always go into the university, I always go into the hotels, and it's more really for the collaboration spirit element. I socialise with them. I always feel that people are equal at work within our teams. I never feel like I'm above them. I never feel like I'm the boss. I never feel like I'm different. Um, so when I go in there, I try to, you know, have a laugh with them, make them feel that, you know, that we're working together. We, we know it's hard work every single day. Um, but I think I've had to pull back a little bit. Um, five years ago, um, I think it was 2016, I blew up at Christmas um, and I changed quite a bit. You know, I started a bit later in the morning. I started to have breaks every five or six weeks, which I cut like little mini retirements. So I don't think I'll ever get to like 60 and retire or 65 and retire. I don't think that'll happen. But I do think it's conceivable that I will have mini retirements and then longer mini retirements in the year that will enable you to refresh yourself to keep going. And I did that five, six years ago and it worked um, to the point whereby I sort of stepped out of operation a lot more, which I think empowers the team and you have trust in your team. It's helpful for them, but also be there for them when they want support because they do need comfort and they do need your support and the feeling that you're protecting them, I feel. So I, I should be the comfort blanket for them, but still they should feel under pressure, it's that feeling of not stressing them, but stretching them yeah. to, to, to perform. And it is that balance that I always felt Sir Alex got right. Mm. You know, he, 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 I always felt inspired to go on the pitch, to take risks, not not stretched to a point whereby it was, which is stretched, but not stressed mm. to the point whereby you close up and you, 
you know you see some players freeze and that's because they're not relaxed enough they're not they're not inspired um, and I think five years ago I changed in that in terms of my operational uh, involvement but also myself managing myself and making sure that I took breaks every five or six weeks and also the, I, I laugh a little bit now when we talk about sort of breakout spaces or not having the staff in the office or not having the staff sat at certain desks I, I thought five six years ago it was criminal to make people come into an office and make them sit at a desk and it's criminal I always have honestly I won't do it I don't sit at a desk looking at a screen so why would I make someone else do it and I always think that now. You know, we put out a, an advert for a, and the hospitality industry is getting a kicking at the moment. And I think partly rightly so, part of it's tough as well because of COVID. But we put out an advert for a chef in one of our businesses a few weeks ago. And, it, and apparently a chef's uh, pay is around, for breakfast is around 23, 24 grand. And they said that they didn't get much uptake. I went, good. <laughs> get up at four o'clock in the morning, go and cooking bacon and sausages and eggs. I won't get up for 24 grand to do that you know, to work till 12, one o'clock. I said, put 30, 35 grand on it. Make, you know, inspire that person to think that they're in, that, you know, they're not just there as a dog's body. And I generally think, I feel passionate about those things. Um, so that's the influence I do have on the businesses. We're now going to go to four day weeks for chefs in our businesses, because we can't get chefs, no one can. But they'll work really hard for those four days, but we'll get three days off. Mm. And I feel that we should look after people. I feel I should look after myself. So when it comes back to myself, if I'm taking more time and I'm taking my retirements, why would my team not? Why would my team not? Why would they not have more time off? Why would they not have more relaxation? Why should they not be allowed to go to the gym during the day? Why should they not be able to go and pick the kids up from school and take the kids to school? It's a right that they have. Yeah, they've got to do the job. That's the principle. You've got to do your job. But they should also be able to do those things that we like doing, the shareholders, the bosses. Now, we like doing those things. We should also, and I always think that you've got to make sure that whatever privilege you're afforded within your businesses or whatever work you're they should work as hard as you but they should also have the privilege of you as well in terms of the the sort of the the, the, the environment and the enthusiasm and the and the, the conditions that they work in um so about i think i'm to be fair i did something yesterday about a month or so i have a yearly uh, mot on my health and i got a shock on a couple of things so i will change again now in the next sort of five years, I'll change enormously again. I've started walking. I mean, I sound like really, you know, I, I used to do hit sessions four or five times a week. I'll now start walking. I'll change my diet. I was drinking every day nearly for the last two years, but not heavily. You know, I'd have a couple of glasses of wine every single night because it got to six o'clock and I'm bored and I can't go out and I'm locked in and you just have a drink and everyone will have been in that position potentially. A lot of people will have been. And I've just stopped drinking. I didn't drink for 20 years, for months on end. So I don't need it. But you just get into those bad habits sometimes mm -hmm. and then you've just got to come off it and, um, you know, stress, diet, exercise, sleep, um, don't sleep very well. They've got to improve enormously in my life in the next few years and then I've got to make sure that when I go and speak to the teams that are working with me, that they have that same knowledge that I'm gaining mm -hmm. from people who are sort of saying to me, this is what you need to do. Well, I said, okay, we need to make sure we all sleep better. We need to make sure we all exercise. So we exercise together in our office, you know, two, three times a week we all go. And that's not easy, but it, it means that people who may not go, and that's, every, you know, people who may not go feel comfortable. Mm. Now they might not want to go, some of them, but mm. most do. Yeah. Because there's no, you know, I'm running this speed or you're running that mm. speed. It's we're all doing our very best. Um, and we, we do things together. And I think it's really important to create a team. But I do think in terms of managing time, 
we have to really look after ourselves and make sure that we are looking after our time, our health, but also our team, and that's transferred to them. Okay. Um, you've been a little bit vocal about politics in the last few months through COVID uh, and the government's strategy in terms of lockdowns and the way they've handled business, I suppose. I mean, that's where you've been most critical and most vocal. Um, I'm just going to ask the general question, really. Give us your analysis of what you make of the government at the moment. Do you know something? I, I think they're really dangerous individuals. And I mean that. Um, I, I always think that, can you relate to people to start with? Would you go for a, would you go for a drink with them? And, you know, you think of Johnson and Gove and Raab and Hancock and Williamson and Rees-Mogg. <laughs> and I think, I don't think, there ain't one of them. That I, I don't know anybody like them in my life. And I don't think, does anybody else know anybody like them? And the standards that they set are absolutely disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. I was just talking to you before I came on about Gavin Williamson, who today, I mean, he'd probably think I was Will Carlin. Um, <laughs> um, but today, he's delivered an in-person in, in teaching seminar to Universities UK in Newcastle, but he's done it from Zoom. <laughs> I mean, it, everything they do, even it's just the small things, they don't do the right thing. And I do think they're dangerous because I think it gets to the point whereby they do that many things wrong, you become numb, and then you don't actually know what's right or wrong anymore you actually start to think, well, are they right? Are they wrong? And this is nothing to do with being a Labour voter or a Conservative voter. And I think they create great divide. I think they create great divide. I, I really do. And no team. We're a team in this country. We're one team. You know, you might have different, you know, we, we should all be together generally in our principles. You know, everyone should have right to good health. Everyone should have right to good education. Everyone should have right to a roof over the head, a good job, feel safe. All those things that really are sacrosanct. We, are, we do all think the same thing, really. Yeah. Whether you're a Labour voter, Liberal, Democrat, Green, you know, all these, all, we all, the basics we should all think, well, does anybody really want to see another man or woman struggle? Not really, no. I can't believe that anybody wants that. Yeah, I look at these and I just, I despair. I really do despair in terms of how they've got in, who's voted for them. And you could say that the last election, there wasn't a great choice. I completely get that. And that's probably part of the bigger problem that we have at this moment in time is a lack of leadership and a lack of leaders in this country. People who can inspire you will take you forward. You think, right, they're going to make mistakes, but they're going to tell us that they've made mistakes. I went to Valencia and I was really shit. <laughs> right? I was so bad it was untrue. I will never do F&B, food and beverage restaurants again, because I was really bad at it and I lost a load of money. Simple as that. So I'll just be honest with you about that. I failed. No problem. I can have that conversation with you all day long. If they just told us the truth, if they just were honest with us at least once, the amount of times that they hesitate at the start of a question that's difficult is unbelievable, a lot of them. And the amount of times they change their mind, the amount of inconsistencies, the, I, I, I really think it's a, a big problem. And I'm not saying that we're the only country in this world at this moment in time that has that problem. I know there are other countries as well. But I, I'm struggling with it. And that's why I've become more outspoken in the last two or three years about 
politics. And I do think that it's up to Labour to put up a better fight, but I also think it's for the Conservative voters. You know, my family, my, my dad was voted Labour, my mum's my still alive, votes Conservative, because her parents had a really bad experience with um, high taxes, was it late 70s? Mm. Um, and she, you know, her family vote Conservative. But it's like, you can support a football club and still want the manager out. Mm. So if you're a Conservative voter, you know, Conservatives are your football club, just get your manager out. <laughs> get your manager out, he's not good enough. He's a chancer, absolute chancer of the highest order, and I'll say that publicly, regularly. And some may not agree with me in here, but I have to say that we, we must put it in the strongest possible term. This is not a time to be weak, to be shy, when what we see in front of us is well below what we should expect. And I'm not talking about his personal life, I always keep that out of it. I'm not interested in what he does in his personal life or any of them do. In fact, to be fair, none of us are perfect. So actually, I played in the football team. We all have to be tolerant of each other's mistakes. I'm just talking about decency, integrity. They've nothing, absolutely nothing, honestly. I can't think of one positive. I can't think of one positive. I mean, they point towards the vaccine rollout, don't they, as a positive. And yeah, well done to them, maybe. But it's like a manager losing 20 games on the bounce and winning one game and saying, yeah, look at my game here, that one. You lost the last 20, mate. Honestly, don't, don't start bragging about it. So I, I just to me, I really I feel in, in despair at this moment in time. And I do feel we are going forward as a country in spite of our government, in spite of our leadership, because I do generally believe 99.9% of people in this country are good people who want to get on with it and want to do things and want to work hard and want to keep going and want to you know, deliver the health service. Deliver. I mean, I went on the train this morning. I, I tweeted out at six o'clock this morning that Avanti are a shambles, absolute shambles. I don't know why I got onto them. <laughs> just a personal angst, just a personal thing. Um, Boris Johnson to Avanti. Uh, but just generally, I just feel really despondent about things. Every, every day there's something I think, how's that happened? How can that be? And big things and small things. Yeah. I mean, just to put this into some perspective, because you, you've commented, obviously, um, on the government's performance, um, but just to share an anecdote with the guys here today, I got a call from <coughs> Keir Starmer's office about six months ago now, I think it was, and they said, can you get Gary on a call with Keir? I've not been invited since. He never will get invited back again. <laughs> um, but, you know, do you just want to relay that? Because you, you've sort of skirted over a little. But yeah. one of the reasons I think you, you have poor government is when you have poor opposition. And yeah. I don't think the opposition is doing a great job at the moment. It, it was just around the time, wasn't it, where Andy Burnham was doing the sort of um, save the north of England <laughs> in front of the top of town hall steps bit. Um, and... Yeah, Keir called, yeah, we were on a call. He, I think he just abstained on Brexit. Mm. Yeah. And then it was two days before, he's, he, it, there was rumours on, it was, feeling was he was going to abstain on lockdowns. And I, I remember him asking me the first question, Lucy Powell was hosting, and I said, Keir, whatever you do, don't abstain. Don't abstain. Yeah. That's not leadership. Leadership's not abstaining. You might have to make an unpopular decision. You might even have to go with them if you feel like you want to go with them and explain why you're going with them. But don't sit on the fence. It's like a pundit or anybody on television. 
the best punditry is where there's conflict, where there's debate, where there's a definite sure thing. And that's not to say that everything is here or here. There are sometimes things in the middle. But I said, as a leader of the opposition, you cannot abstain. You have to take a position. And he abstained on the two biggest issues, I felt, that were obviously within his time, which was Brexit and uh, and lockdowns, uh, local lockdowns. It was a tier system, wasn't it? It was a tier system, yeah. which was a shocker. It was a shambles. Just divides. Divides people within the same city. Divides people within the same country. Divides people within the same region. It was just devi so divisive. Um, and the way in which they delivered it, and then the inconsistency of how they delivered it, um, was incredible. And I just felt as though, you know, you have to stand up to this government, you have to be brave. Um, and I didn't feel as though, as though he was going to be, and anyway, it didn't affect him because he abstained. <laughs> <laughs> and I've not been invited back on the phone since. Have, um, I'm gonna get the ball out in a minute because people will be interested to learn about what you've taken from football into business and some of the personalities that obviously you've worked with over the years. Um, but Gary Neville in the future going into politics? Any prospect of that? I don't think so. I don't think so, no. You're disappointing a lot of people in the audience. <laughs> I don't think so, because I generally think I would get stuck in the mud. They would eat me alive. The system would eat me alive. It would just swallow me up. And that's not from sort of any personal... You know, it's not from people talking to me. Mm. I just feel like, um, I suppose it's a little bit like the FA. Yeah. People have gone into to the FA, Football Association, and tried to reform it time and time again, year after year, or five year after five year. Mm. You know, we'll have a new commission, or we'll have a new report, or we'll have a new this, and we'll have a new that. And it never changes, because the system is stuck. Mm. And I think that's where Whitehall is. Mm. I think that's where government is. I think it's stuck. I think there would have to be seriously, and this sounds really, uh, sounds really sort of 1560 or 1420. <laughs> I think there would have to be a revolution. There'll have to be a march, I think. Mm. It wouldn't surprise me. This government, the type of government that could bring a, not a violent revolution, but they could bring her, honestly, they could. I generally think they could do something. I might be wrong. I might be over-egging it. I might just be getting carried away because I'm pissed off with that train company. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but I just feel like the type of people that I would march against, and I've never marched in my life. I think they're the type of people you could march against. They break pledge after pledge. They lie day after day. They lack integrity. They get away with it. They feed their friends their masters like you wouldn't believe the media have bought into it i mean the bbc and the, oh they're they caught all oh, the way in which they behave with them honestly get let's interview them properly let's let's make them stand up uh, football managers have to go and do an interview after every single match it's tough sometimes when you lose they hide they throw williamson out one day and then rab comes out the week after then golf comes out once every blue moon, he's not very good. And Reese Mogden will come out, who's a disaster, and to be fair, to keep him away from things. But, you know, and then somebody, and it's just like a rotation of, of noise, of like, it's just, oh. So I think in terms of politics, the only thing that would change politics is for the people to really stand up and demand change. And that would need something monumental, I think, to shift what we've currently got, which is a system that protects the elite in Whitehall and Knightsbridge and all these places, they just, you ain't getting in that. That, you know, that, that. that world of that underground in London that maybe you thought existed 800 years ago, it's there. 
it exists, it's there, it's, it's the media tycoons, it's the, it's the politicians, it's the big businessmen that sort of play the game. And I don't play the game. Mm. I won't play the game. I won't be bought. I won't be um, manipulated into saying something or doing, you know, of course on television sometimes you have to play the game in terms of, you can't just criticize everyone all the time, but I won't play that game that would mean that I would get through the doors. That's why Keir Starman never invited me back. Mm. It's, it's true, because yeah. once he really, you know, if he really was, that was a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, it was. It'll be uncomfortable next time as well. Yeah. Because yeah. there's 12 business people on the call from the north of England, <laughs> and I'm saying to him, you abstain, you're essentially giving that guy a free ride, and it isn't leadership, and he didn't want to wear that, really. Yeah. But that's why I won't get in. That's why I won't be allowed in. Because that's not politics. I'll carry on working on Are we marching later? Are we marching? So, <laughs> so yeah, marching against the Banty. Right. Football and how it's related to your career beyond the game. Um, so you, you've mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo and you've mentioned Sir Alex. Now, two massive personalities yeah. who you could transfer their talent set and I would argue... Whatever they'd have gone into, they'd have been successful. And the conversations you and I have had, it's clear that you not only admire people, but you learn from them. Just talk me through what you sort of learned through your playing days at United and who the key personalities were. So Alex was the main personality mm. in just of setting the standard, the boundaries, uh, and then within those boundaries and the right principles, you know, play football with risk, express yourself, believe in yourself, have confidence, go and win the game, do whatever it takes to win the game, work as hard as you possibly can, never give in. You fight to the very last whistle, a goal and takes a second, all those basic things. I never, in 26 years of, of, of oh, yeah, 26 years of being at the club and 21 years of listening to his team talks, I never once heard a team talk where he didn't allude to hard work and how important that is and how much you have to work for each other and how much it's important to never give in. And every single day, it felt like a personal challenge to work as hard as you possibly could and never give in. He said, forget the talent bit. He said, I've dealt with that already. I'm selecting you. The fact you're in the team means you've got talent. So trust me on that, which gave you belief that he believed in your talent. And then all he asked you to do was achieve your standard of work rate and performance. So he set the standard all the way through. And then we, just, we, were, we were like disciples in the dressing room. When I got into the dressing room, it was Steve Bruce, Gary Pallister, Brian Robson, Mark Hughes, Eric Cantona, um, Peter Schmeid, all, the, all these great characters. And they were disciples and they were, all, they were all with him. And we had, as young people, you have nowhere to go. And it's so important that when you relate that to business, you know, the young people coming into your business will follow the lead of these people here that are above them. And if the standards are great here, and the principles are good here, then you'll, they'll follow down here. And it's the same with parenting, it's the same with teachers, it's the same with sports coaches. You know, whatever's here will follow down. It's the same with government. Um, and at the moment, that's why I think we've got a bit of a division in the country. You know, it always seems to be division because of what's happening at the top. Um, and I think that Sir Alex was just, he, he was absolutely brilliant at that. We were one. And we, we had to win, but we had to win the right way. Um, and in the dressing room, there were standout characters, Roy Keane, 
was the big, most influential football player that I ever played with because he was a mirror of Sir Alex Ferguson. And in the end, that clash came whereby, obviously, you know, that Roy left because you always had to leave. The manager always stays. That's, that's a fact of life as well, ordinarily. Um, and, but they were, you know, Roy in the dressing room was the, he was the manager in the dressing room. And then when Roy left, I think me, Giggsy and Scolzi were the managers in the dressing room. Mm. Just little things, you've got to nip them in the bud. You know, little things like people being late. Roy would never accept people being late walking into a meeting. You know, it's not right. Mm. You, you, everyone's there, it happens to all of us, we're all late at times. Um, but generally we were on time, we were dressed in blazers, in suits, we looked smart. Sir Alex Ferguson always said, you're representing Manchester United you wear a blazer. Um, he probably, to be fair, now clip me around the ear because I've not got a tie on. <laughs> you know, that's the type of, you know, it, it, with that type of sort of standard that you'll be set all the time, you're always representing yourself, your family, me and the club. And so higher standards were always there. Now, that didn't mean to say that we didn't have players who dropped well below those standards, including myself, on and off the pitch. You know, at times we were difficult on the pitch, we were arguing with referees, bad tackles, off the pitch, there were incidents of major ill discipline, and he would punish in the way in which he would, in terms of so he would he would, he would discipline that he would deal with that, but he would always deal with it internally. He would always deal with it internally, and now in our businesses, everybody leaves well. Nearly everybody leaves well. <laughs> Nearly everybody leaves well in our in our businesses, and that can be. In the hotel, two or three years ago, a member of staff has maybe got the hand in the till. I always want to know why have they got the hand in the till? Why are they so desperate? What's making them do that? The easy thing is to say it's greed. It's greed, they just want more money, they want to go and buy a pair of trainers, they want to buy a pair of But sometimes I always think it's good to know why they had the hand, why they did that, why. And I always have a conversation with, the, with people, even if it's a, a bad exit like that, I always make sure that it's dealt with an element of compassion. And Sir Alex always dealt with people with compassion. Unless there was a real massive issue and then the trust was broken and then you'd go. But generally we deal with you in that way. And that was big, big issues of ill discipline. It's difficult in a corporate world, you know, if you're working at a Savills or a PwC, because you're not allowed that human touch anymore. You just have to kick them out the door. Go on, there you go, gone. Mm. And that's sad, but in our businesses, there is still that human touch of feeling of when someone's with you, it's the greatest responsibility I have, I have is that I'm an employer of people. They, they rely upon me and my businesses to make sure they go home every day and they can live. And that's a massive responsibility and I feel that. And I always felt Sir Alex felt that responsibility to his players. And I always felt his players looked up at him and knew that he was looking after us. Mm. Um, so just great standards all the way through and that's where I learn everything I relate to is from those experiences. Sometimes it costs you. I forgot some of the lessons he taught me in Valencia um, because there's another side to say, for instance, loyalty and compassion. There's also being brutal and making tough decisions, which I've done better since I left Valencia. If someone's not aligned, they're against, they're not enjoying it. If someone's face is not right in your office, if someone's face is continuing, I don't mean daily or on a week, they might have had a bad week. I'm talking if someone's face is down, if someone's not right, if someone's not happy, if they're coming in and it's a little bit of a slog and it feels like it's a bit of a slog talking to them, they've got to go. They've got to go. And I forgot that in Valencia. 
two captains came to see me. They have four captains in Valencia, believe it or not. <laughs> um, in, in Spain, sorry. And two came to see me saying that they wanted to go. One because he was having a tough time with the, with the fans and the other because he wanted to move back to the other part, another part of Spain. And at that point, when I knew that they weren't with me and they weren't with the club, I just said, right, you go. And I should have insisted to our owner at the time, Peter, they've got to go. But they stayed in the dressing room I thought I could win them round. So I remember the compassion bit, but I didn't remember the actual brutal bit as well. So there is that element of, of him where he did obviously famously get rid of players at times. But it was a brilliant environment. It's, it's a great place to be when you've got a group of people who love being there every day, who, who want to fight for the club, the business, whatever you want to call it. It was, it was the club. But also when they make a mistake, they come in and own up. Mm. We, I, I never once got into a dressing room at half-time where a player who hadn't made a mistake didn't apologise or put their hand up. Mm. I mean, they were going to get it anyway, so they absolutely <laughs> prefer. Um, but there might be a time where there might be a discrepancy between two players and they would argue it out mm. and it would then be dealt with by the players. But it was a real accountable environment that we lived in. Um, but one that you couldn't hide. There's no hiding place. But also, they would all look after each other. So it's a brilliant place to be, that Manchester United dressing room under, under Sir Alex. I do think Oli now is trying to get that back. You know, whether he'll succeed or not. But I do think for three, four years ago, the biggest problem I had with Manchester United was that I didn't like the players on the pitch. Not from a football point of view. Mm. I didn't like them. Mm. I didn't feel that they wanted it. They wanted the club. They wanted to be in Manchester. And I do feel the players we see now out on the pitch, they want to be there. And that's really important. You've got to have people in your office, in your sports team, wherever it may be, they've got to want to be there and enthused about being there. Because it really is hard work every single day. I'm going to go to the audience. I've got loads of questions, but I'll ask you next week or something. Listen, questions, um, please indicate. Yep, come to you first then. Um, I like it. So uh, the stock exchange, I love property. Um, and when I saw, sometimes opportunity. So hotel football came from an opportunity. A fan had took an option on the land with traffic council and couldn't deliver it and came, knocked on my door and said, will you, um, will you help me? I gave him £100,000 with no contract. With, actually, I disappeared for 12 months. I just said, look, go and get your planning and go and... And, and I, never went, I never went back and he, he, he said, right, OK. In 12 months' time, he knocked on my door again and said, look, we can't get the funding. Um, and I said... And I'd not delivered that bigger scheme at that point in time. I was just coming to the end of my career and I just said, right, it's a great piece of land. We can get a great property on it. It's staring straight into the face of the club that I love. And um, I think I'll give it a go. And that was motivated by just wanting to do something bigger in a location that I loved. Um, and I went and offered the club a 50% share to see whether they would joint fund it with us. And they said, no. I think that decision they regret a little bit to this day. Yeah. But I went, I actually went, I think I went to Dubai one year and met Peter Lim. Uh, he was a United fan. He just said, what are you doing? I just said, I'm just doing a bit of property. And I showed him hotel football. And he said, I'll fund it. I didn't, I've, never, I've never publicly gone out to raise money for anything. I just tend to have conversations with people. 
um, because the idea of publicly going out to find money, I, I feel a bit awkward about. Asking people for money is something I don't feel comfortable with. So I always put all, all of our projects with 50-50 at the beginning and our money goes in, my money goes in. Because I always feel like I need to be able to look people in the eye. Um, and so the whole stock exchange came from the fact that I wanted a freehold building in Manchester. Um, and I moved all my property interests out of Bolton where I'd built these 15 or 20 sort of farms, big houses. And I wanted to move into central Manchester where I'd, I'd finished because I felt as one, I wanted to grow and do bigger things. But secondly, I wanted to, um, I felt like I could become more public about it. You know, being a property developer in Manchester mm. United's right back isn't going to work with Sir Alex Ferguson. <laughs> so I, said, I knew that I could become more public about it. So Stock Exchange was something that I just thought, I just love the building. And I love Manchester City Centre. I love Old Trafford and Trafford. I love Salford. I love Bury and Bolton where I've lived and grown up. So I love these places. So I will buy things and think people put things to me in these places. If you said to me, there's an industrial site in Barrow, nothing against Barrow, um, that's going to give you a 16% return year on year, I wouldn't even, you wouldn't even get another sentence out of it. It's been, no, I would never even look at it. I don't want to travel over to Barrow. I don't want to go to Barrow. I'm not, my passion isn't Barrow. My passion is where I live. So it comes down to, do I think it's something that's in a field that I want to be in and also where it is? And yeah, I'm a passionate about it. That is my, not motivation, but that is my criteria for investment. And then obviously it has to work. And my barometer for work, making it work, is um, HSBC in London, who lent to me, just coming out of the recession, so we were building Hotel Football, which is the first big project that I did, and it was a £22 million project, and we couldn't get debt in Manchester on a management contract. On a Sorry, we were going to operate it. We mm. wanted to own or operate it. We always try and do things the hard way, but I had this feeling that I didn't want to be a stranger in my own hotel. Mm. I didn't want to walk into the hotel with a management contract from, say, a Hilton <laughs> or a Marriott, who were great, maybe great operators, and feel like I was like, wasn't my hotel. I wanted the people in there to feel that they were working with me and, and, and we all felt the same. Um, and so I couldn't get any funding in Manchester at all from any bank. But HSBC in London, their hotels division, somehow lent us 50% of the money. Um, and I've used them on every deal since that's big. And I always think that if they lend to me, that, that they'll tell me no. They told me no once in Manchester on a building and I pulled out. Probably shouldn't have done because it's gone like that. <laughs> but I always think, if, you know, because I always think 50, 60 percent is about the right sort of yeah. debt that you should have on something. I'm quite pragmatic around that. Um, obviously, I think we're all still a little bit sore still from the last recession. Mm. I think that's why we've probably not gone under this time. That you know, our debt isn't as high as it was obviously 15 mm. years ago, and I think the banks have changed. They're regulated more. The Bank of England, all the other banks have got greater mm. experience. But I think that to me, the measure of whether I do invest or not is usually, you know, people that I know and trust at HSBC and think, does it meet their criteria? If I want it, I'll usually do it. But it gives me that second comfort, I think, if they'll lend to me on it. Okay, thank you. Next question. Have we stunned you into silence? No. Sorry. Yeah, go on, Jeff. Um, I'm Jeff Cowser, architect principal of BDP and former Salford City player. Uh, well, the 30 quid that I earned a week meant I definitely didn't have an agent. <laughs> I, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic that the committee that were there when I played is still there in the professional League Two club. I think that's an absolutely fantastic decision. Um, I'd re be really interested to hear your sort of overall sort of wider ambition 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of the committee, there were 14 committee members. Uh, 12 of them voted for us to come in, two didn't. The two that didn't, one of them travels to every single away game and the other one's our club secretary who's still with us. And my commitment at the very beginning, which I won't ever stray away from us, you 14 people stay with us right the way through as long as you want to stay with us. And you stay in the same roles. Our secretary is the same secretary as we had. Our Babs is still serving the burgers. Buck still runs the bar. Karen's still the chairman. Um, you know, all the people that you mentioned, Dave's still the president with, and Jed, who's the vice president who travels to every away game. Because I think football clubs are about people mm. and we're not Salford City. We're not, we are the new Salford City, but there's still a traditional base at Salford City that's been going you know, 50, 60, 70 years. I think our ambition has to be to connect with the community more. There's 350,000 people living in Salford and we're only getting two or 3,000 crowds at the moment. And I want, and it's not going to be quick, because a lot of them are reds and a lot of them are blues. Um, and, but I want to connect with the, I want the people of Salford to feel like we've contributed. We're putting a lot of effort into our foundation at the moment. I think we've raised something like about 750,000 pounds in the last 12 to 18 months. That'll be invested heavily in the community in the next, I think probably six to 12 months. We've got a dinner tomorrow night in Manchester as well. So I think we have to do more in the community. We have to go back to the reasons why we bought the club in the or took over the club in the first place. Um, I think we have to. They're the things really, and we have to be successful because no one likes a losing team. Um, so we have to put a team on the pitch that can relate. I don't think we've had a team in the last two or three years that the fans can relate to. When Bernard and Jono were the managers three, four years ago, the crowd were with them. They were part of the crowd. And I always think when I go to Liverpool, I use this as an example at the moment. The crowd are with Jurgen Klopp and Jurgen Klopp's with the crowd, they're one. And the manager has to be like that. Sir Alex had the crowd where he wanted them and the crowd had Sir Alex, you know, they had his back. And so for me, that's really important that we get back to those sort of principles. Um, and it's not easy to achieve that. So I think we've got it, that culture that I think we have in hotel football or having our development company with our teams. I want that in the football club, but it's harder to achieve because you've got the most, the most important employees moving every one or two years. And last year, you know, I, I owned up, I, I sat at uh, Graham Alexander after six games, he'd been at the club store for two years. It was a terrible decision that went against my principles and went against what I believe in. It was a terrible decision, shocker. What am I doing? I go on television and talk about sort of, I, it's madness. But you'll hear me say it's madness and it's a terrible decision, it, it was my call. So I'll admit it and it won't happen again, you know, unless there's a real issue. Um, Rich, Richie Wellings came in and, you know, Richie had to go for him and for us. He just had to go. And I don't need to go any further than that, but he had to go. That's not a problem, that one. That, you know, I brought it. I shouldn't have got rid of Graham in the first place and gave him the hospital pass that I gave him. Um, so, yeah, I think our ambition is to create that culture that we believe in and that spirit in the club that connects with the city. And he's success, obviously we win games. Okay. Sure. Um, no, we have. A, do you know something? We have a relationship that is um, competitive, but it's honest. Um, 
yeah, I can say anything to him, he can say anything to me, and we'll get on with it straight after the show, or we'll get on with it straight after an argument. You know, he can post out on his Instagram story. Can you swear in this room? I think I've already brought that room, haven't I? <laughs> um, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> um, you know, he put out his Instagram story, says at Anfield on a Saturday afternoon, you know, come on the Reds or something like that, and I'll just basically send him a DM saying, fuck off. Um, <laughs> and I genuinely mean it. I, I genuinely don't want him to win a football game. Um, so, and it's the same with me, you know what I mean? He just sometimes, you know, it, 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 we have a great relationship. Uh, and I do think that we've dropped, you know, that Liverpool Manchester United thing exists and we want our clubs to win. But I do generally think we're on the same page in a lot of areas that we'll say it as we see it more often than not. Sometimes it's tough for us because he's got relationships with Liverpool and I've got relationships with United. But it's, it's, it's a good relationship. I'm conscious that it can't go on forever. You know, it has to stop at a certain point because, you know, you, you know it, I think it's really helpful that Roy Keane's come in, that Micah Richards has come in. So I think that's a new dynamic that means that it's not just myself and Jamie all the time. We can, you know, we're not just... I, I always think it's, br it's brilliant when new people come into a business or into a studio and you've got that different dynamic and that different angle of looking at something and uh, not, you know, no two football minds are the same, fans or coaches or pundits. Final question from me, one that I'm sure the vast majority of the audience are interested in anyway. Um, we talked about leadership and you were very praiseworthy of Gareth Southgate. And I just yeah. wondered what you thought about England's chances at next year's World Cup, because we came close in the Euros. As I yeah. say, you were very supportive of the manager when others were critical, actually. So where do you think uh, that the, the team could go? I think that, it, it, you know, for, for us that are 40, I'm 46 years of age, and for, for those in the room that are of that sort of age bracket, Gareth Southgate isn't your leader you grew up with. He's not your leader you grew up mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. But I think he's a leader that the young generation today can relate to. Yeah. And that's what makes him, I think, a great leader today. That his team are with him. He's got empathy. He's still got disciplines and standards. You know, the Phil Foden and Mason Greenwood incidents last year where they went AWOL in Iceland and he's left them out of the squad and Mason's still not got back into the team which is surprising to me but you know he's still suffering so he's shown that he can you know put discipline at the forefront of his of his operation but he also I think speaks well to the media I believe everything he says he's got integrity he's smart he looks the part and I think young people can relate to him we might not like the fact he didn't make substitutions last night or we might <laughs> think that you know if you're our age that's not a leader. Sir Alex Ferguson's a leader, you know, tough and, you know, jumping up and down on the touchline. And, but that isn't, that isn't what, you know, my, my, my daughters, they wouldn't respond to me if I was shouting at them or if I was, they'd just laugh at me, I think. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, know, you can't teach the same way at school anymore. You can't lead the same way in business. You can't lead the same way in sport. So I think England have got the right leader for the right time and the right moment. He's had more success than any other England manager in history apart from Sir Alf Ramsey. And I do think we've got a great chance. I did think after the last World Cup in Russia, which I was at, they would sure to repeat that, but they've just gone and re not repeated, they've gone better and they've got to a final. And I think it would be a great journey if he could go semi-final, final and then win something. I do think they're a really good team. I know we just conceded in the last minute last night and it was, wasn't the best of games, but it's tough there in Poland. Mm. You know, I've, I've been to Poland a number of times and played and it's not easy. Um, but I think they're a really good team. They're a good group. Um, they've got a great spirit. Uh, and I think we've got a good chance of competing and getting to the sort of latter stages and then hopefully something can happen. 
Thank you. Gary Neville, future Prime Minister, show your appreciation, please.